Welcome to another edition of Reshaping America. This is Kurt Flewelling. I don't know how, Mr. Broadcast Engineer, we're going to get uh, all of this in in an hour, but we will um, We will try to do that. Action-packed week here. Um, State of the Union, Senate acquittal, Iowa caucus results or non-results, whatever you want to call them. Um, the prayer breakfast was a little... Uh, Colorful this morning, and um, the post-acquittal press conference or whatever—I don't even know what that would be called today—was um, was bizarre. And um, what I will try to fit in toward the end of the show is um, the big news that we heard this week: mm-hmm. that the uh, mighty Rush Limbaugh has stage four cancer, which is absolutely horrible. Our uh, prayers continue to be out to him and his family. But um, yeah, this, the State of the Union, I uh, I jotted down some notes fast and furiously, um, and it was difficult because President Trump covered a lot of ground really quickly and did it effectively. You know, if, if you are a student of these State of the Union messages, they, they tend to be um, a chicken in every pot type of a message whereby, firstly, the president will tout whatever he has done in the past and either um, making it up out of whole cloth or something that could be actually fact-checked as most of um, Donald Trump's assertions a few nights ago could be. Um, And secondly, they all do this. They all throw into the mix I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I want Congress to back me up on this and usually hitting a litany of um, constituency groups. So it it is kind of an amalgamation of this is what um, I have achieved or my administration has achieved in the past year. And um, oftentimes they will throw things out that that really are are pretty nebulous and benign. Trump had facts and figures, which – was amazing. And uh, you, you've heard that in the annals of uh, speeches, uh, State of the Union speeches, that it was right up there with uh, some of the Reagan speeches. And I, I really think it was. Um, big Ronald Reagan fan, and that is high praise to say that. But um, I really do think Donald Trump hit a home run, not only hitting all the constituency groups, but he hit them in a way that wasn't obvious. Um, he and his administration, and to a lesser extent, the Republican Party, I guess, have really done a number of things in the last year amidst all of this uh, impeachment chaos that really translate into effective, uh, tangible things for many of these constituents, as I said, constituency groups. And if if I was in one of those groups, a union person, uh, a minority of one form or another, um, young, old, black, white, uh, just all sorts of he, – he touched on every single group out there with effective policy that has positively affected those groups. And if I am in one of those groups, I would certainly be listening. 
I would certainly, if I was on the fence as to who I was going to vote for in the fall, would certainly be very, very inclined to vote for Donald Trump. Um, the first thing he, you know, touched on was the economy. You know, it, it, Nancy Pelosi, when um, and we can get to her ripping up the uh, copy of, of his uh, speech, which was childish at best. Her and her ilk were um, basically asserting that it was just a pack of lies. You know, anybody that has a 401k and is opening that statement up at the end of the month, I don't care if you are lower class, middle class, upper class. I don't care how much money is in your 401k. Your 401k has grown exponentially with Donald Trump in office. That's that's not a platitude. That's not a pro-Trump statement. That's not, um, as his detractors would assert, something that is made up out of whole cloth. It's true. Uh, you, you really cannot refute that. Um, so when uh, I, I did see a little of the uh, Democrat rebuttal uh, given by the governor of uh, Michigan and her, her um, assertion was that this economy, albeit good, is only good for the wealthiest 1%. Now, I don't know how you continue to effectively beat that 1% drum like Elizabeth Warren does and, and most leftists do, this eat the rich uh, mantra that they have, when it's pretty hard to not notice, as I said before, whatever economic strata you happen to be in when you're opening up your 401k at the end of the month and it has grown another, I don't know, $100, $500, $7,000, $12,000, hinging on how much money you have in there. It's absolutely undeniable that this Trump economy has affected everyone. And to assert that only the wealthiest 1% are somehow benefiting is something that that is really hard to swallow. It really is, unless you really want to go out of your way to not look at the accomplishments of the Trump administration. Um, I get it how Republicans are supposed to stand and go, yay, and Democrats are supposed to sit and, and be respectful. But, you know, there were far too many jeers, far too many boos, far too many... Um, disrespectful groans from folks on the left. And they came at times that were so inopportune and, and so wrong. It was really just very, very disturbing. Um, when he asserts that 7 million people are off food stamps, that's a good thing. And 10 million people are off the welfare roll. That's a good thing. Now, did he... I don't know, spiked the football a little bit, saying in the previous administration it was this, and in, under my uh, administrative watch it is, you know, this. Yeah, he did do that, and and you know that that may uh, ruffle the feathers of some, but to boo or grumble when seven million of our fellow Americans who formerly were on food stamps. Um, uh, and are now are not on food stamps. That's kind of bizarre. And 10 million people off welfare as opposed to those folks being on welfare. 
I don't know how you boo that in, unless you're really um, someone that has a lot of problems or you hate Trump or you just it's it's all politics with you. Everything is politics. Um, he said it was a blue collar boom and he got booed. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, at the on the one hand, when he was touting the economic numbers and the unemployment rates, it would it would stand to reason logically that if the unemployment rates are that low and the economy is that good, it is that good for everyone. But the reason that he said that and then went down the various groups that were um, affected um, in, in a good way by this economy was simply so people like the governor of Michigan wouldn't demagogue the issue and say, yeah, the economy's okay, but you know, it's only for the wealthiest 1%. So Donald Trump, in a, you know, some would say a politically self-serving way, but in a very factual, methodical, business-like way, went down the various groups out there that have benefited wildly from this economy. And as I said before, you state that it's a blue-collar boom and you get booed by somebody, that, that's just, it's just, you, you don't want to stand, you don't want to clap, that's one thing. But there's really, if blue collar workers out there, and he did go out of his way and say that workers that do not have a college degree, um, blue collar workers, if you will, um, have benefited wildly um, by this economy. That's a good thing. Um, he killed NAFTA. He touted that he killed NAFTA. And that was something that was grumbled about, uh, upon by, by some in the audience. Um, the one thing that really wrangled some of the folks in the audience, particularly African-American Democrats, was, and they hate it when he does this, when he asserts, and it's factual, it's you can look it up, the lowest unemployment rate in the African-American community in a half century. I am telling you, there is more, there are, I should say, more people than you can imagine that put color aside. And if you're black in, in this country and you, your family, your husband, your son um, could not get a job during the Obama administration and now they have a job, you know, you're going to put the R&D thing aside and you're going to vote for Donald Trump. Um, and he did a very effective job throughout the night touting um, his his accomplishments and how they have benefited the African-American community. Um, lowest middle class unemployment in several decades, highest female employment in several decades, um, energy independent uh, the number one producer of natural uh, natural gas. And this was a big one that, uh, you know, I, I watched the audience and it got, again, some grumbles and some snarls and whatever. Under the Obama administration, uh, 60,000 factories in this country closed. And in the three short years that Donald Trump has been president, 12,000 factories um, have opened or uh, have been constructed. That's amazing. And uh, th those are numbers that you just cannot refute. Um, he went into foreign policy, and again, beating the America first drum that is so effective among Donald Trump devotees. Uh, it may not 
resonate as much with uh, some other people. Um, people. Some people may put it in the category of sloganry or, um, uh, you know, nationalism, if you will, which can be problematic. But in a, in a cult, in a, in a time heretofore, before Donald Trump, where Donald, where Barack Obama apologized for the United States of America, and we were on our heels in many uh, areas um, globally or internationally or in foreign policy, it is refreshing, even if you're not a, a big Donald Trump fan, to hear that there's a president that's not ashamed to talk about American exceptionalism. And, and Donald Trump takes that opportunity whenever he can. Um, he did go on to say, and, and I, I know this to be the case because I've, I've done business internationally and I've spoke to, uh, spoken to many people from many countries. As much as Obama went on his apology tour in many countries, there's a lot of countries that, um, as Donald Trump said, actually admire us, envy us, fear us. And that's a good position to be in, in a whole host of ways. So um, this Trump economy and this America first thing, if you love it or hate it, it is undeniable that we do have the respect of many countries out there that heretofore did not respect us. And we are also envied and respected and and um, uh, looked upon as, um, you know, with admiration, if you will, now that Donald Trump is the president. So um, another thing that resonates with a lot of people, uh, our allies are going to pay their fair share. He, he got, um, he got our allies in Europe, the NATO countries um, that heretofore were kind of deadbeats. They weren't, they weren't putting up um, the money that they should to fund their own protection. They were relying on the, uh, the infinite wealth uh, of the United States to do that. And Donald Trump said, absolutely not. You have your own economies. Um, you can pay for your, um, your fair share to protect yourself. If we're picking up the lion's share, you can at least put some forward to that. So he has gotten many of these countries to pony up the money that they should be ponying up to protect themselves. Um one of the things that he said that really uh, wrangled many in the um, in the audience, and it should because they are socialist, is he said, uh, we will never be a socialist country under his watch. And that um, elicited incredible cheers from many. And if you look up into the uh, right-hand corner of the venue – uh, many people uh, of the squad, if you will, and many other leftist females uh, in, a, in, a, in a show of solidarity wore white. Um, they were pretty they were pretty silent because many of them are devout socialists. Um, Bernie Sanders, who may or may not have won Iowa, I guess we'll never know, um, devout socialist. Um, Donald Trump does not shy away from calling it what it is. And um, Bernie and his ilk know that it is such a hot button issue and, and such a um, 
dangerous, sore, hot word that they won't even use the word. But Donald Trump certainly will use it. And he got raucous cheers from the crowd by saying, we will not be a socialist country. Um, and he did uh, take a fair it – was, it was a long speech, but, you know, I, I did notice he took a very long time uh, parking on the Venezuela thing and acknowledging who um, he and many others in the world uh, – uh, are are thinking that it is actually the true leader of Venezuela, not the the leader that um, will not uh, cede uh, or will not um, give up his power down there. And he took he took a a long time to park on the Venezuela thing, and introduce that gentleman uh, to raucous uh, applause. And I think that was all very calculated stuff because. If you look at the Democratic uh, lineup of would-be presidential hopefuls, many of them do fit into the category of socialism. And if, if young people or people that are apathetic or disinterested don't know much about socialism, I think it was a nice learning lesson to to at least hit some of the um, salient points of socialism and vow that we will never be that and um, – I think that was that was effective. As I said earlier, he he hit all constituency groups in an extraordinarily effective way. Um, like a businessman, he's he's um, he's been a very successful businessman. He's probably chaired thousands of meetings, and he knows how to do this. And one of the things that was refreshing to Trump um, devotees and just garden variety Republicans in general was the fact that he did not speak of impeachment. He did not um, do gratuitous shots across the bow. He did a little bit of that today, um, ironically enough, at the prayer breakfast and at the acquittal, um, you know, uh, victory party, if you will. But he certainly did not do that in the State of the Union speech. And um, that was a good thing. He kept on message. He kept on task. And it was uh, businesslike is a very good way to describe what he did the other night. Um, he challenged the mullahs in Iran, and that was pretty impressive um, that he did that. He he did not mince words. Uh, a lot of the verbiage the other night was was very bold to the point. It uh, did not equivocate. It didn't do a lot of political wavering and political doublespeak, which you can uh, sometimes hear at these things, absolutely forthright and to the point, and he did a very good job. Um, what I found to be absolutely fascinating, and there were a, a myriad of fascinating things the other night, he did take the time to park on very slowly and speak about um, the, the, um, the killing of al-Baghdadi and uh, Soleimani. And he went into detail as to who these monsters were, the atrocities they perpetrated. Um, actually, it was very heart-wrenching. A, uh, a mom and dad were in the audience that um, lost their daughter um, uh, under um, uh, situations, scenarios, if you will, that were orchestrated by Soleimani. And um, it was very gut-wrenching. And, and another thing, when, when some of those gut-wrenching things were happening in the audience, um, the young kid that wanted to go into the uh, space um, 
Space Force, this new uh, fourth branch of the armed forces, I guess. And uh, his great-granddad, one of the Tuskegee Airmen, and the, the little girl, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment, from right here in Philadelphia. And, and you know, probably the one of the most heart-wrenching was uh, the, the little kids and the mom that had not seen their dad and husband um, for a long time. He was in Afghanistan, and he walked down the aisle and kind of surprised him. You know, I, I know cynics and folks on the left might call that a little schmaltzy, but it, it was it was fascinating and disturbing to just see many of um, Donald Trump's detractors kind of just roll their eyes and, and just like, come on, get, get on with it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy's reunited with his wife. Can we get on with it? I mean, the, the soullessness of somebody that would roll their eyes during a just a warm moment like that, regardless of, of um, who that uh, or, or how that benefits your, your political enemy, is really pretty chilling. And um, throughout the evening, we just saw a lot of that stuff. Uh, ironically enough, uh, Adam Schiff kept his poker face most of the night. You know, he he had that you know crazy, bizarre look on his face, but he didn't really waver. And um, but many people in the audience did show a tremendous amount of disrespect, which I think the American people, either on the left or right, do not like. Um, but yeah, where I was going with that is I noticed that when Donald Trump was talking about Baghdadi and Soleimani, uh, I don't know if you guys picked this up, but it, it was really pretty in your face. He pivoted and turned his body directly to um, those folks um, that were wearing the white blouses in, in the, on the right side of the venue. Because not certainly not all of them, but many of them um, have engaged in some pretty profound anti-Semitic rhetoric, uh, pretty terrorist-friendly rhetoric, and um, are could, could could generously be termed as anything but hawkish toward terrorism. And he turned to them. He got a little redder in the face. And he almost looked like he was talking to them. And it was really pretty intense. And, uh, you know, that what's happening in this country, not just in Washington, is pretty intense. There's a lot of, there's a lot of folks on the right and a lot of folks on the left that are really in a very agitated state right now. And this could only be, um, termed as dangerous uh, if, if things aren't real careful. But I know that I said to myself, wow, he is speaking right to them. And it was pretty intense. Um, President went on to talk about um, nas national security um, and how it pertains to um, illegal alien or how illegal aliens and sanctuary cities and sanctuary states, if you will, um, contribute to um, security challenges in this country, again, uh, went out and commended the good men and women that work for ICE and was booed by more than a few people that I, I would presume represent cities and, and suburbs within those cities. Philadelphia certainly is one of them that don't have a favorable opinion of ICE. 
and I don't get it. I, I, you know, I, I don't understand that. You know, ICE is just doing a job. And then he went into how um, ICE agents would um, petition local uh, um, people in uh, in uh, various sanctuary cities to release into their custody illegal aliens that have committed um, crimes, not just shoplifting crimes, pretty intense crimes. And the sanctuary cities would say, no, this is a sanctuary city. We're not going to do it. And then he chronicled on a couple of occasions individuals such as that that went on to do some pretty heinous things, making the point that it really doesn't make a lot of sense to have laws if your citizens and even more disturbingly your guests, if you want to be kind to illegal aliens, are going to flout those laws um, and break those laws and then go to an area where, no, 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 you can't catch me. That's absurd. That's a recipe for disaster. And I did not know that California was not only had a number of sanctuary cities, uh, President Trump used the term sanctuary state which is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And, and, and given the fact that how many instances of individuals that have perpetrated some pretty heinous crimes in the state of California, it's amazing that it still continues, but it does. Um, what else do we have? He, uh, he in, in the area of national security, he proposed $2.2 trillion for the military. And that always is something that is going to uh, ingratiate himself with his base or conservatives or hawks out there because when our military is intact and we have the things that we need, uh, we are a safer nation. And if our military is not properly funded, we are not a safer nation. That to me is common sense, but um, I think that was good that he said that. Um, on to healthcare uh, again, a hot button issue, something that the Democrats have kind of uh, owned, and they have um, used pretty effectively. They pushed Obamacare through with some really um, bizarre, unconstitutional types of maneuvers, but they got it done. And they are the party of of healthcare, at least they they assert that. But he went on to kind of chip away at that a little bit, and I think he did it effectively. Um, he vowed to fight uh, free health care to illegal aliens. Now, I don't care if you're on the left or right as far as you want socialized medicine, you want to change the delivery system, you want price controls, whatever, wherever you are on that continuum, I don't think not giving those services to pe to a very large percentage of our populace, anywhere from 12 to 20 million people, uh, free access to that and free health care. I, I don't think that's something that is really arguable. I, I know some people think it is arguable, but if, if this system could uh, benefit from cutting waste and frivolity and, and bureaucratic this and bureaucratic that, I don't know of a, of, of a worse way to try to, to start some of those cutting measures 
than to give free health care to 20 million people that are not even citizens of the United States. So I think it was very effective that he did that. Um, he vowed to fight a $180 billion socialist takeover of our health care system. I think that was good that he threw that out there. The, the State of the Union uh, speech is, is not a time to drill down into the minutiae and explain what um, socialized medicine is. He probably could have done that a little bit um, uh, with a little bit more detail. But I think he got that across that um, in anticipation of uh, an opponent of Bernie Sanders or, or any of the other top three, Buttigieg or uh, certainly uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, they're all touting health care for all, free health care, health care for illegal aliens, socialized medicine. And, and he's kind of greasing the skids, throwing that out there like we are not going to be a socialized, um, a socialist society. Uh, he vowed to fight a takeover of one sixth of the U.S. economy, which would that is basically what healthcare is. And um, I think that resonates with folks, particularly if you have people on the left that um, are really pushing hard for this. Um, and I, I think educating the American populace to, um, you know, and I, I've always said this when describing Obamacare. You know, people will oftentimes say our, our medical, our healthcare system, our, how we deliver medicine, is is really pretty sick in and of itself, or it's it's whacked, or it's not good, or it's uh, leaves something to be desired. Um, and, and people who say that, you know, uh, there is there is room for improvement, and the improvement and the improvement is getting the government out of healthcare to a, a much larger extent than it's already in there. But people that say this healthcare system sucks or it's um, it needs a lot of help or whatever, they they are conveniently not comparing it to every other system in the world. So will I see the the fact that we could improve our healthcare system? Absolutely. And this was before Obamacare. Is it clearly the number one healthcare system in the world and, and nothing out there, I don't care what country you're talking about, is, is even a distant second? That's a factual statement. And when people talk about this, and when, when I've debated Obamacare with folks, it would be like having a, a really nice, big, beautiful house that you've saved all your life for. And you notice in the fourth bathroom downstairs that there is a, um, there's a leaky faucet. Um, you can do one of two things. You can call a plumber and you could fix the faucet, or you could take a wrecking ball to your half million dollar house and start again. And that really was the, the crux of the debate with Obamacare. This is a system that, that needs some tweaking, needs some improvement. But to completely and utterly propose to scrap it and overhaul it is, is insane. And um, I'm, I'm kind of going off on my Obamacare rant here, but I'll leave you with this with Obamacare. If you want to see what's going to happen if Obamacare ever gets um, and does not cave in under its own weight and, and, and is, is fully implemented, 
go to a crappy VA hospital in many, uh, many of the cities in this country and talk to veterans and, um, and see what kind of health care they're being provided with. And then, then talk to me about socialized medicine or Obamacare. But uh, with health care, he did, he did um, take some shots uh, across the bow. And that was definitely because Bernie is and, and um, Elizabeth Warren are very big on this health care for all thing. Um, and I guess you could put this in the category of health care. He denounced late-term abortions, um, which is, again, another very strong constituency group um, that the president has done nothing but solidify his standing with them as far as um, – his uh, opposition to abortion. Um, criminal justice reform is something that he addressed. And again, detractors uh, of Donald Trump in, in the venue really were rolling their eyes. You heard grumbles, you heard groans, but you can't really deny it. Um, the commercial that he put out during the um, during the uh, Super Bowl about the the lady that was um, in jail for a really long time for um, a minor drug offense. Um, she got out of jail and she sung Donald Trump's praises and she should have. Um, a lot of people give cr criminal justice reform and many of these issues lip service, particularly at the State of the Union uh, address, but they never really do anything about it. Love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump. He is a businessman. He is a get things done type of a guy. He got this lady out of jail. Um, everybody talks about criminal justice reform. He actually did something about it. And I have spoken to many African-American friends of mine that are very apolitical. And they know this, this is an issue that's near and dear to them for a whole host of reasons. And they're not big Trump fans, but this uh, they do cede the point that this guy has done something about uh, incarceration rates, people being in jail for minor crimes longer than they should, et cetera, et cetera. Um, many of these uh, things disproportionately affect African-Americans. So there are folks in the African-American community that may not be staunchly Democratic. They're certainly not Republicans, but they will vote for this guy for this and, and many other reasons. Um, and as you've probably heard by a number of pundits, you know, typically Republicans get eight to 10% of the black vote in this country. And Donald and, and uh, a little bit more of the Hispanic vote, probably about 14%. If Donald Trump doubles those numbers, which he very well could. Uh, if you listen to or look at polls of how uh, favorable he is looked upon uh, by African-Americans or Hispanics, it, it, it's not a leap to figure that this coming November, if the economy stays the same way, he is going to get a record number of African-American voters and a record number of Hispanic voters uh, many of which are not real happy about people jumping the wall ahead of other people to become citizens in the United States. The dirty little secret is everybody thinks that's um, just uh, you know evil white people that that have a problem with illegal aliens. I'm going to tell you something: the people that have the biggest problem with um, 
uh, Mexicans that that um, do come to this country illegally are people from Mexico or Central America that came to this country legally. They um, they have a huge problem with people that have come here illegally, and they vote. And there's more of them than you think. And so Donald Trump is could very easily be sitting pretty with both of those um, both of those types of individuals. Um, he introduced uh, Governor Tim Scott, who, um, in his state, opened up many opportunity zones. These are these are areas where um, funding is given to individuals that um, that are expressing a need to turn their life around. He introduced a guy named Tony, that was a drug addicted ex con, who got his life together due to funding um, for an opportunity zone. And unbelievably, you heard grumbles and eye rolling and, and all that stuff for when when Tony was introduced. I mean, the 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 polarization. And I will see the point. A lot of it is Donald Trump's fault um, because he just rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Is absolutely incredible if you can take a guy like Tony, who got his life around uh, with some program. And heretofore, 80% of the people in the audience would probably stand for Tony and clap with their feet. And you got a, a sizable number of people in the venue that are that are rolling their eyes about a guy that got his life together due to an opportunity zone. We're talking about polarized times, ladies and gentlemen. We really are. Um, he introduced Gina, or, excuse me, Gina Davis and her mother, and I, I particularly took note of that because they um, they were from right here in Philadelphia, and uh, you know, no, make no mistake, Donald Trump, Donald Trump um, picked on Pennsylvania, just like he did um, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio for very very obvious reasons. But he, he um, took a couple of shots at Governor Wolf. There was a program that uh, awarded scholarships to uh, inner city families uh, in order to for them to get out of what Donald Trump called, and he, it is correct, the terminology, failing government schools. Um, and there were, there were about 15,000 um, uh, openings for that. And uh, Donald Trump is, is advocating for why, why is there any cap on that? And um, Governor Wolf uh, vetoed a, a proposition to to expand that to more than fifteen thousand openings. Well, poor Jenna was not one of the fifteen thousand, and he proudly announced that evening that uh, funding had been found for Jenna and her mom and family in order for her to escape a crappy government school in the city of Philadelphia. Okay, uh, you're an African American and in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which is a really battle zone as far as um, uh, this this next election is concerned. You tell me you don't resonate with Jenna and Jenna's mom uh, crying and their li- you know their their lower lip quivering because Jenna now has an opportunity to go to a school where she's not going to get shot or have her backpack stolen 
That stuff resonates, ladies and gentlemen. Freedom is not exclusive to one race or another. We have all been um, given this this yearning for liberty and freedom by our creator up above, and it really does transcend all – you know, cultural norms or colors or races or creeds or ages. It really does. So when somebody like Jenna is just profoundly grateful to Donald Trump and, and for what he wants to do in, in, in the, in the, in, in taking on, you know, big education who uh, many in the public school, they, they fight tooth and nail against homeschoolers and charter schools and school choice. Um, that's a big deal, and that's going to resonate with some people. Um, he spoke of a constitutional right to pray in public school. Again, um, you know, a cynic would say that he was just checking boxes um, <laughs> that night, but he was checking boxes, but he was backing up his rhetoric. It wasn't a chicken in every pot speech because he was backing up his rhetoric with actual producible things that he has done in the last three years or intends to do that are tangible and they are real and they have concretely affected many of the constituency groups that, you know, a cynic would say that he is pandering to. So um, these are quantifiable results uh, during the, the Trump years here. And it's going to be very difficult for any Democrat to beat that back. We can uh, touch base briefly on Nancy Pelosi. Um, excuse me, had to get some energy here. The, um, I, you know, a lot of words to describe Nancy Pelosi. Um, unhinged would probably be a good one. Um, you know, I, I, look, I, I know it's very difficult if you have a problem with the president to sit behind the president knowing that, you know, millions and millions of people are going to be watching you for an hour and a half. Um, you know, Mike Pence was was almost a little wax figure-ish, uh, <laughs> but that uh, that does mean he knows how to do it. Um, you know, he kind of gave the golf clap when he needed to and stood up when he needed to, but his face really didn't... Um, wasn't too animated, which is what you want. But Nancy Pelosi is, is a pretty much of a veteran at this. She's been in that position before. And um, the weird mumbling and the um, and the eye rolling and, you know, once in a while kind of stood up for something that was bipartisan, which, you know, was good. But for the most part, just a lot of weird eye rolling and mumbling to herself and, you um, and the ripping up of the speech at the end was um, – that was just um, – you know, it, it was a lot of things. But getting back to what I've um, discussed on this show almost weekly is it is indicative of the uh, the polarized times that we're in. And if you're a Democrat and you have thrown everything but the kitchen sink at Donald Trump and it has not worked <sighs> – you, you know, don't be heartened by that if you're a Donald Trump fan or a Republican, that this thing's just going to go off in that good night and these guys are going to give up. If you haven't noticed, ladies and gentlemen, in the last couple of years, with every victory Donald Trump has um, against these folks, 
they come back with something more crazy, more outlandish, more desperate, more psychotic, if you will. And that's not going to stop. And we are in for a really long, almost five years here, if Donald Trump gets reelected, and I think he probably will. Um, they're not going to stop. And when people are desperate and angry and fearful and crazy and the walls are kind of falling in, they do pretty crazy things. And, um, you know, bringing this impeachment in and of itself was nuts. It caved in on them. It, it could not not cave in on them with all of the the um, things that led up to the impeachment. And um, But her ripping up that speech was just another example of, um, of, of just how polarized this nation is. And um, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. So um, let me, uh, let me kind of dovetail. Well, you know, let me, let me talk real briefly about the, um, I will get to Rush Limbaugh in a minute here because, you know, he was, to all of our surprises, he was uh, part of the, um, he was part of the, uh, State of the Union speech. I, I don't know if he thought he was ever going to be, but he certainly was. And we will let me address that in a minute here. But I, I did want to briefly touch on the Iowa caucuses, which um, l let me full disclosure here. I am not as as many talk show hosts are one of those um, if there's smoke, there's fire type guys, because I, I've just seen over the years too many innocent people get trashed and destroyed because somebody jumped to a conclusion because they were, you know, um, where there's smoke, there's fire. But I will say this, the Democrats and their corruption over the last couple of years have done absolutely nothing to ward off the suspicions that we all have in Iowa that something is just smelling like fish. I mean, a half a century ago, we put a man on the moon and we can't throw together a, a few votes in a, in a state where there's really not too many people and get some election results out. This, this thing is a cluster of epic proportion. And if people are crying foul and smelling fish and saying, you know, Bernie's getting screwed again or something weird's going on by the Democratic hierarchy, um, I don't think that's conspiracy theory stuff. I don't think that's where there's smoke, there's fire stuff. There, There's enough things that have gone on in the Democrat Party in the last five years alone that would lend anybody with a pulse to be highly suspicious of what's going on uh, in Iowa. I mean, uh, it, it just, uh, you know, Buttigieg presumably has won by a little bit. Over Bernie Sanders, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren is third, and Joe Biden fourth place. Um, that can't be good. And usually, if you're in fourth place in Iowa, you, you're not going to do too much better in um, New Hampshire. Um, they do say that that he has uh, an infrastructure down south, and and some of. Um, the uh, traditional Democrats will vote for him in South Carolina, but with a with a low personality guy with a tremendous amount of baggage, such as uh, Joe Biden, I I don't I think um, 
I think it's very feasible that that he fizzles out before he even gets to those um, uh, contests down south, where he could very well do better than he's going to do in Iowa or or New Hampshire. But I, I don't I don't think he stays alive um, uh, metaphorically anyway uh, for that long of a period of time, it, particularly if he gets fourth again in New Hampshire. So the Pete Buttigieg thing, I I don't. I don't see it uh, happening on a national scale uh, for for many reasons, but none the least of which is he was uh, a mayor of a small city. How you jump from that to being leader of the free world, I will never know. But I guess there's people saying, you know, how did Donald Trump get to, uh, you know, from um, The Apprentice to uh, to the White House? And um, I don't think it's in completely analogous, but... Um, I think Pete Buttigieg is very light in a lot of areas. Um, Elizabeth Warren has a credibility problem. Joe Biden has the Hunter Biden baggage problem. Um, so we have, uh, and, and you know, Amy Klobuchar came in a close fifth, but uh, I don't think she's making enough noise to uh, to break through. Um, the big thing is um, Michael Bloomberg, and uh, in in typical Trump fashion. Um, Couple shots across the bow, saying, uh, "Why does he get a box to sit on?" Um, I, you know, I want a box, and <laughs> you know, typical intimidation, and and uh, it sounds very um, much like something Donald Trump would say. But um, you know, and I'm I'm not saying Michael Bloomberg is going to come in after three or four of these um, contests and then just emerge. That that strategy has been tried before. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was polling very well nationally uh, when he was running for president, and he said, "I'm not going to get hurt. I'm going to, I'm going to skip, um, I'm going to skip Iowa, skip New Hampshire. Um, I don't think I'll win South Carolina, but I'm really going to focus on Florida." It was too late. It was absolutely too late. So this sandbag approach and wait till all these unremarkable candidates just kind of you know, fizzle out and nobody rises to the top. It seems logical, um, but you got to jump in sometimes and nobody's really ever done it. Um, but the big thing in, uh, as they say in politics, um, you know, money is the mother's milk of politics. Um, Michael Bloom Bloomberg certainly has enough cash to do that. But one of the big problems he has is even if he does have the cash to to outlast, um, say, the top four candidates, there is a very sizable chunk of, of those primary voters, particularly Bernie devotees have already been screwed four years ago, that um, their, their favorite thing to do is eat the rich. And I don't know how in the world they go out and pull the trigger for some rich guy that bought the election. Um, I, I know that folks on the left um, sometimes don't have the principles that we would like them to have, but I, I can't imagine that there's not at least a few people in a number of these states that won't vote for Michael Bloom Bloomberg solely because of that. So um, we got that, which is, and he was uh, here in Philadelphia the other night. I, I, um, I understand the crowd was pretty light and um you know, sandwiches and wine were provided, and he still couldn't even uh, gather that many folks. So, um, 
In the last couple of minutes here, I, I do want to pay tribute to Rush Limbaugh. I know um, many people have the the um, the mindset that um, uh, on a talk show you never really talk about other talk show hosts, particularly if they're uh, up against your time slot in the afternoon or whatever. But in this day and age of podcasts and people listening through the internet and listening on their phones. It ain't like the old days where we, you know, we had some rusty pole in the middle of nowhere broadcasting and um, you were competing against some other guy at a rusty pole, you know, 20 miles away. You know, we can listen to shows anytime we want to and there's really no competition. But um, even if there were, I, I certainly would, um, I would have to address the, the fact that Rush Limbaugh has stage four cancer. And it's really interesting. When I started in radio, I um my second week on uh on the air I had to go on and kind of spank Rush Limbaugh a little bit who was the reason I was on the air and who the is the reason thousands of talkers are on the air as far as uh, inspiration and many other things I had to spank him because I didn't think it was real forthcoming when he had the um the opioid addiction. Um, he, I think he went on the air a little too quickly and wasn't real forthcoming with a lot of the details and then just kind of dovetailed right back into the news. And then a week later, just announced um, in, in greater detail that he was going away for rehab. He should have done that in the first place, but kind of had to spank him a little bit. But um, certainly Rush Limbaugh has made... Um, thousands of careers. I know this figure has changed um, dramatically, but try to cast your mind back to uh, the days before there were no smartphones or you could not listen to the radio on the internet or um, television or anywhere. You know, it's basically, you know, it was a rusty pole somewhere. And if you, you know, drove away from that and there was not another rusty pole somewhere, then you lost the signal. And it was a, it was a very low tech world in those days. And before Rush Limbaugh came onto the scene, this is all you really have to know about the impact Rush Limbaugh has made on, on just countless individuals. There were, and this was in the mid nineties before all the technology, there were 125 talkers in the United States of America. And in a couple years after Rush Limbaugh made it big, um, probably 92, 93, he came on the national scene in 88. That ballooned to 4,100 talkers. And now that 4,100 talkers is absolutely dwarfed because of technology, but in large part because of Rush Limbaugh. So um, the fact that he announced that was mind blowing. And the fact that, um, you know, that this rocked everybody, um, because Rush has been a, just a staple on the air for so many years, but seeing him at the, uh, state of the union and then getting the medal, uh, presidential medal of freedom. Um, I, I just, I, I thought it was a, an absolute surreal experience. I, I'm watching it and I'm just like, is this really even happening? This is crazy on, on so many levels. Um, and being the empathetic guy that I am, I, I try to, I try to put myself in the shoes of the garden variety leftist in the room that, um, probably goes home and, and sticks needles in their Rush Limbaugh doll. Like, 
the 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 blood pressure of of that individual when you know admittedly their their arch rival their kryptonite if you will is not only a guest in the um in the house during the state of the union uh message but but is bestowed the presidential medal of freedom um I, I can't even imagine how that felt. Um, I, I know how it felt for me and and many people that that appreciate Rush and everything that he brings to the table and um, the human interest story of of him battling cancer. And, and as I said earlier, we are praying very hard for him to be healed. But um, just unbelievable to uh, to even try to get into the shoes of somebody that can't stand Rush Limbaugh that was that was a part of all that. Um, just an amazing, amazing time. So we are winding it down here. Um, this edition of reshaping America, just, uh, stay tuned. Um, keep your head, uh, keep focused on the word of God and, um, be civil when you engage people and try to, uh, change minds, always attract and don't repel. And, uh, we will see you again, uh, next week.